This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm the Vice President for Scientific Affairs at Bright Focus. And today we're delighted to talk with Jim Demerick, the Education and Rehabilitation Program Manager at the Wilmer I Institute at Johns Hopkins University the medical school there, and Bob Massoff, a professor of ophthalmology and neuroscience, also at Johns Hopkins. So both Jim and Bob are involved with the Lions Vision Research and Rehabilitation Center, and this center offers a multidisciplinary team of specialists who work to search for an understanding of the causes of low vision. They are working within that context to better manage patient treatment and care, and We're going to hear more about all the work that they're doing in low vision therapy. As you know, every month we feature a different topic for our chats. Today, we're learning about low vision therapy. So Jim and Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. I would say that if you have a question that you'd like to ask our guest at any time during today's call, please press star three to submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, there's a number to call back in, and that number is 877 229-8493. You'll then be asked to punch in the ID code of 112435. So that ID code is 112435. Okay, so Jim, I'd like to to direct a first question to you. You're a low vision therapist. Uh, You've set up many programs for folks with low vision. I was hoping you could give us a brief overview of what low vision therapy is and the benefit that it provides for patients. Thank you, Guy. Low vision therapy is a program where what we've used at Hopkins as a model is where a patient's being seen by a low vision clinician, either being an optometrist or ophthalmologist, to uh, confirm the medical diagnosis, to refine the refraction, to make sure that all medical intervention has been done, and to get some beginning points in terms of strategies, in terms of magnification therapies that can be used in concert with um, rehabilitation therapists being occupational therapists, rehab therapists, service providers in the community to address the overall needs of the patient, both in the clinic and in the home. So it's a service that's multidisciplinary. It happens within the facility and the rehab agency, on the job, in the home, and it involves you know many people with the clinician kind of setting the groundwork for the rest of the team to follow through. And we've you know instituted this in a number of different programs over the years here at Hopkins and we're currently trying to take that and expand that model to make it available to people in multiple District 22, which is the Lions geographic areas of Delaware, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. So we're we're focused on the call today, particularly for macular degeneration and glaucoma, but the prevalence of these diseases. You see many more conditions with that I, than that. I I think I read someplace that. In, in your all stat, you say that perhaps as many one in five people uh, by, that, by the time they get into their 90s have, have low vision. And it sort of begs the question of who has access to this low vision therapy? Is there, uh, are there referrals needed? Is it covered by insurance? How, how does one get involved and, and who are your clients? Community at large, as we are going on with the aging population, you're correct in that there's a growing demand for the service. The dilemma is that the demand far exceeds the availability, so it's supply and demand. So what we're trying to do here at Hopkins is to set up some innovative programs to help meet that 
demand for the service by uh, reinforcing the supply in terms of incorporating low vision rehabilitation service into primary eye care providers right now to address specifically what you say, those that's the leading cause of low vision in the country, and that's a central vision loss, specifically people with macular degeneration. So it's our aim to have uh, a number of providers throughout this area that anyone could access service within 45 minutes of where they would live. The problem is one, it's the best kept secret for even those that provide it. And then once people identify where it is, how do you access it? And if you can access it by knowing that it's available, how do you get there? One of the programs that we had mentioned before, this LoverNet program, the Low Vision Rehabilitation Network, is trying to use and incorporate an alliance as foot soldiers to one, publicize the program in their home community uh, so there's an awareness and identify and match providers up within the community. And then the second fold is to get the alliance to be direct care service providers by offering transportation to get the patients to the actual clinical low vision exam to begin the low vision rehabilitation process. So you're, you're getting into overcoming the barriers that people have in, in getting to the uh, getting to low vision therapy. And you, you hit on a bunch of them, but maybe I, and maybe I could address this to Bob because I know you've done a lot of research in this area. You know, if you could go through the list of the main barriers that you see in your communities to people accessing low vision low vision therapy, are they are they structural? Are they are they emotional barriers? What what is the group you work with? What what constitutes their their troubles in getting to take take access to everything that you all have available? Well, thank you, Guy. The, uh, just to elaborate on uh, what Jim just said, one of the main barriers is just the lack of availability of service providers who can uh, work with patients who have low vision uh, from a rehabilitation point of view. Uh, there's, it's kind of a two-stage process in that whether it's macular degeneration or glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy or any of a number of other age-related eye diseases, uh, once damage is done to, to the vision uh, from the disease, that damage typically is irreversible. Um, most of these diseases can be uh, controlled uh, with medication or with surgery or injections, but the, uh, uh, once the damage has been done, uh, the, the damage uh, cannot be reversed. So uh, the second stage of care really is to be able to to make the best use of the vision that you have, that you have, and that's what low vision rehabilitation services are about. Now, uh, the typical uh, service providers are optometrists mainly who provide the front end of the service, but also some ophthalmologists uh, will pr- offer low vision rehabilitation services. And then uh, patients with more severe visual impairments uh, typically are passed off to people like Jim, who's a vision rehabilitation therapist, to work with the patient either in the clinic or in the patient's home to um, help solve everyday uh, problems in doing activities. Another profession that's very actively involved in providing rehabilitation are occupational therapists. And uh, occupational therapy traditionally had not gotten the kind of training that was needed to work with visually impaired patients. However, that's changed over the last 10 years, and more and more occupational therapists are doing extra training in order to uh, work with low vision patients. So so the biggest barrier is is simply... uh, 
getting the service providers to to offer these services and to coordinate the care. Insurance does cover low vision services. It covers both the services provided by the doctor, by the eye doctor, whether it's an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, Medicare in particular, because most people who have low vision are uh, Medicare beneficiaries. And it uh, also covers the rehabilitation services that are provided by the occupational therapist. There are other services uh, through the, uh, often through state agencies and so on that, that can provide um, low vision rehabilitation. Uh, and sometimes the costs are uh, covered by, by the state or by federal grants to, to these agencies. Uh, the cost of low vision devices, which I would imagine most people who've had chance to get them already are aware of, uh, are not covered by Medicare, and they're not currently, and they're not, and in some cases, they're covered by state agencies, and if you're eligible for VA benefits, they would be covered by the VA. But uh, the, uh, for most people, the low vision devices themselves have to be uh, paid for out of their own resources. So, uh, so getting the services available, then uh, making both the doctors who normally would refer patients for low vision services aware of the existence of those services and how to refer to those services, and also making the public and and people with low vision aware of the availability of services and how those services can benefit them uh, as part of an education project. And uh, the role of uh, the Lions Vision Rehabilitation Network, Lions Lovernet, is to educate the public to uh, help educate the community, the community eye doctors about the availability of services, to coordinate care, uh, make sure that many of the barriers such as transportation um, uh, are addressed so that uh, people who need assistance with transportation can, can get it, and, uh, that, uh, uh, and also that the appropriate reporting mechanisms so that uh, uh, low vision services can be uh, quite tedious from the point of view of collecting information about how low vision is affecting the, the person's life and uh, what activities are important to the person, what activities need to be addressed in rehabilitation. And so the Lions also can assist with uh, gathering history information because one of the reasons people go to get low vision services is they're having difficulty with their vision and uh, to hand them a, a clipboard full of forms to fill out is not sure. tenable, and so by having the Lions assist with the interview process in order to fill out these forms uh, ends up to be uh, overcome one of the big barriers to providing service that just how to get the information you need in a reasonable period of time at a reasonable cost. So what, you know, we're going to talk in a little while perhaps about how the, the LoverNet study that you're running, the service, might be extrapolated to other communities, but in the meantime, if you're if you're not in that Maryland Delaware area of service, uh, what would you recommend for the for people to find out about options in their own areas, be they within a uh, urban environment or perhaps a rural environment, as many of our callers are? There is a uh, website out. It's called VisionAware.org, and on it they have listed by state. They break it down within the state the individual services. So, as an example, if you lived in California, if you go to Again, it's vision, V-I-S-I-O-N-A-W-A-R-E.org. It would break down by state the services, low vision, rehabilitation, education, and that would be a good starting point. 
not an endorsement, but it's certainly a point to start to begin to identify where some of the service providers might be to help you begin to obtain low vision rehabilitation. Absolutely. And I, we've, we've talked a lot about how you find the resources and how you get inserted or intercalated into everything that the community can provide. But, but Jim, once once they're in your office, once somebody walks in, can you give us a, an idea of what what it's going to look like from the patient perspective? What does it mean to 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 start an engagement with a with a low vision therapist? What uh, what are the tests that are going to be run? What does the conversation sound like? Yeah, what I'm going to give you is an experience of coming to Johns Hopkins, and I'm going to qualify that by telling you people don't come to Johns Hopkins initially for low vision; they come here to be cured. So we end up getting the folks after the expectation of vision being restored has been addressed and they realize this is kind of where they are and we take them from the premise of if things change for the better, great, but where we are today is what we're going to begin with. patient will be coming in and as Bob alluded to, we have the luxury of having a history on a lot of these patients before they come through the door. So some preliminary testing will be done to help us if we have a patient with a central uh, field loss, we'll document that with a certain type of testing we have to map out the central field to see where the blind spots are. If it's glaucoma and mobility is concerned, we'll do a peripheral field test. If driving is an issue, likewise. Then that information will be uh, put together and given to the doctor who do a clinical low vision exam. The clinical exam will vary anywhere if it's a new patient, uh, roughly uh, 30 minutes for a younger patient that's pretty directed and doesn't have many needs to where it could be an hour, hour and a half, depending on the uh, the level of uh, need and cooperation of the patient. After that, what would happen is the patient then in this same visit would be referred to rehab while they're there um, to address some of the goals and begin the introduction to the low vision rehabilitation process. But what would happen is a two-part process in terms of the visit. The first is addressing the clinical exam with the doctor, where, as I mentioned earlier, they are uh, basically confirming the diagnosis, making sure that all proper treatment's being done and there's no active case being uh, answered because, again, our primary intent of the visit today when we see a patient is functional. Uh, Then what will happen is the best possible refraction will be uh, addressed and efforts will be taken to improve upon that. One-third of the people that we see, we can improve their vision with a refraction. Having said that, the problem is even though we can improve it, it's probably not to the level of the expectation what they would like. As an example, we could take a 2200 person and probably get them to 2070, but in their mind, they'd like to get to 2020. So just to give you an example, we're testing at much um, greater uh, differentiations. We're also doing contrast sensitivity testing to measure their uh, differential ingredients in terms of shading and intensity. We'll do field testing and we'll do a near test in terms of vision performance with uh, reading and writing. And we'll have the ability to work with some of the comorbidity testing so that we can differentiate what's related to vision and what may be cognitive so the rehab can be prioritized and appropriately addressed. So on the on the topic of of you use the word comorbidity, but this is the context of other conditions that are that are present in the patient. I know Bob, you've you've published some research on the on the emotional well-being of patients, and discussed some additional benefits that low vision therapy might have for people who might be feeling down or or, or clinically depressed. Could you could you tell us something about that study and the benefits you saw for patients? 
Sure. <clears throat> well, the uh, uh, depression in particular has a very high rate, occurs to a very high rate in uh, the low vision population. In fact, uh, it's much higher than you see in other uh, chronic conditions and diseases. So that's a problem that needs to be addressed. And we think one of the reasons, just from the research that's been done so far, that that occurs is because of the stress and the frustration that's associated with loss of ability to function uh, as a result of the visual impairment. And uh, many people with low vision uh, become less active. They, they uh, become isolated. They, they stop socializing and interacting with uh, uh, activities that they used to participate in the community and things of that sort. And, and that can lead to uh, depressed mood, which eventually, if not addressed, can lead to uh, full clinical depression. So that, that problem was uh, addressed in a study that was led by uh, Dr. Barry Rovner, who's a geriatric psychiatrist at uh, Thomas Jefferson University, to, to look at the benefits of low vision rehabilitation, as we've been describing it, uh, for preventing depression. And the study... Uh, all the patients in the study uh, had uh, macular degeneration and had low vision as a result of macular degeneration. And uh, the one group uh, received um, a, didn't receive any therapy, low vision therapy. They received low vision services to correct the vision as best they could and things like that. But they didn't receive any of the, the therapy part of it. But they did uh, uh, meet with a social worker on several occasions who came to the home and basically is providing what's called supportive therapy that's kind of addressing uh, just the emotional aspects of, of, uh, of how the patient is feeling. Uh, the other group uh, received uh, complete therapy, uh, low vision rehabilitation in the home where they were uh, taught to uh, use various types of assistive devices uh, to help them read, to help them prepare meals, to manage your medications and all the other things that are important to do in your home. And uh, the result of that study uh, was that the group that got the uh, low vision rehabilitation with the occupational therapist, uh, that there, was a, there were fewer cases, fewer incidents, lower incidents of depression, that, uh, that these people did not develop uh, clinical depression at the same high rate that the other group that did not get the low re vision rehabilitation did. So that study was uh, 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 quite, uh, quite an exciting result that has created uh, uh, quite a bit of interest because uh, it, it shows that uh, the value of low vision rehabilitation extends beyond simply restoring function, which is the aim of it, but it also uh, can prevent uh, the development of clinical depression in people who are, who are at risk of uh, becoming depressed. I think you were, you were somewhat modest in the statement. I, as I remember the, the publication, the, that intervention halved, you know, uh, made you know 50% uh, the incidence of, of depression in that population. So I uh, thank you so much for going over the benefits of the low vision therapy. Of course, we've been talking about the, the study and the services that you're offering in the Maryland-Delaware area. This is the, the LoverNet project that's been mentioned a couple times before. And I'd like to ask, you know, 
are there plans to bring this project to other communities? And if there's people on the line who are looking to be advocates in their communities, what, what could they take from this conversation to, to understand how to begin that, uh, begin that process uh, if the timing's right? Well, to begin the conversation on that, this is a program that's funded by uh, Lions International out of Oak Brook, Illinois, with support and help from the Reader's Digest Partners for Sight Foundation. We're in the second year of a three-year grant of a pilot program with the intent that this program will be transferred to other communities. The world of materials and information that is being compiled and developed is being done so that's the property of Alliance. This is a program that is Alliance program being administered with the help of Hopkins, but it's clearly uh, and fully owned and responsible in terms of administratively by the Alliance Multiple District 22. Where Hopkins is helping on that is we're one of the providers of the LoverNet, which would be similar to other communities, and we're helping in terms of preparing the professional coursework. The intent on this program is to take it and transfer it out to other sites. Um, that would be, again, spearheaded by Lions and local folks that would be uh, providing the rehabilitation and clinical work, similar to what we've done here at Hopkins. Right now, we have a number of different areas looking to replicate that and are watching closely as we develop it. We're in the middle of the second year of the three-year project, so my advice would be if someone's interested in this kind of program, get in contact with your local Lions and ask them to start gathering some information on the LoverNet because uh, Lions LCIF, Lions Club International Foundation, is very anxious to see this succeed and replicate it around the country. And I, I, I'll add that while, uh, let me start with the housekeeping item, is that anybody has a question today, you can, you can ask that question by pressing star three to submit your question to an operator. And of course, if you're disconnected, there's a number to call back in, that's 877-229-8493, after which you'll be asked to punch in an ID code of 112435. While people are beginning to uh, submit their their questions, I'd like to point out that we'll have a transcript available and an audio recording of this of this conversation available. So anyone who has questions certainly can come to our brightfocus.org website or call us at at 1-800-437-2423 and Give us about a week, and we can get all these uh, all these descriptions, the transcript, back out to you. And so this will incur, uh, for instance, uh, provide the correct spelling of things like LoverNet and the uh, the different contacts that we've we've mentioned on the in the course of the conversation today. I'd like to uh, segue into the into the question and answer session. And so one of the um, one of the first questions we had was about portable devices. Uh, so specific specific devices that aid in in low vision communities. And so a, a a doctor and his wife from from Maine are asking about portable devices that help with both distance and near vision. And is there anything that aids in driving? Jim, is that is that something you could address for us? Uh, yes, it is. My first suggestion would be, rather than trying just to go and identify devices, if you have not gotten a clinical low vision exam, use that as your starting point. Reason being, there are some devices that you can buy online or off the Internet that may or may not meet your need, and there are companies right now that basically make their money by you know, just restocking items. 
What you really want is a very defined prescription. We want to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that you're in the best possible correction before you begin anything, especially if you're considering driving. Uh, because with driving, states have very specific laws in terms of what you can and cannot use in terms of telescopic devices that are incorporated within glasses that would allow you to meet certain criteria under certain conditions depending on the state. So rather than give you a blanket arrangement saying, here's a device, uh, my answer would be yes, there are devices that will allow you to drive. There are devices that will allow you to do distant tasks, watching TV and seeing, seeing things up close. But I would rather see someone start with a low vision clinician giving you a recommendation rather than going out and just buying something at will that may or may not work. It's kind of like trying to buy a pair of shoes when you haven't, you don't know your shoe size. Is it going to work? And if it doesn't, what do you do then? So thank you. So I, I hope that addressed that, that question. There's a similar one in, and Mary from Illinois is asking about devices that would help with checks or reading the newspaper. Is that the same uh, same tenor of advice that you'd give to, to Mary is that uh, is that well, one thing you could do, especially um, if you're dealing uh, while you're trying to get a low vision exam and trying to identify maybe a provider in your area, is an item that's often overlooked is a very low-tech item. It's called large print checks, and you can get those from your uh, bank. Two check companies make all the checks in the country, even though we are going online for a lot of people. It's uh, deluxe and American standard. It's gotten a little bit tougher, but if you take a check, go to your bank, uh, they will submit it, and they will order a large print check for you. So these are come with a large print register, a large print check. It's got a bold raised line. It's yellow background, a little bit easier to see. But that may be an intermediary or at least a starting point for you to help out to, to get some material while you're waiting to get a, a, a complete exam to make sure everything is being you know, done properly for you. Well, I, I think for many on the many on the call, I'd say you heard it here first. I, you know, that's uh, certainly many of us were not aware that the banks could offer that type of that type of service. I do want to point out that both of our guests today are not ophthalmologists, but specialize in the the research and provision of low vision therapy. And so, discussions of specific drugs or or clinical advice. Uh, about the disease is probably outside the scope, and we'll we'll return to those uh, those conversations in future bright focus chat uh, teleconferences. But in the moment, um, uh, we have a call from uh, or or a note from Marjorie from California, who's asking about Charles Bonnet syndrome, and this is a, a syndrome that uh, that causes hallucinations uh, that many people with low vision experience. And I was wondering if there was anything that you could say from a low vision perspective about about coping with Charles Bonnet syndrome. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, the best understanding we have of it is that we know that vision is a very active process. It's not simply like a video camera where you're taking things in. You can think of it more as we're information is being gathered and the brain is filling in the details so that uh, a lot of what we see is invented by the brain uh, based on just sampling uh, visual information. Now if you have a blind spot in the center of your vision and the, and the macula is to vision like your fingertips are to your touch, that's where the very high resolution detail vision takes place and if, if that area has a blind spot um, the, the brain doesn't just uh, ignore it, but actually tries to fill in what's missing. 
and so and sometimes these can be very vivid and can be animated and uh, you see children playing you might see flowers there are all kinds of things it doesn't mean that you're going crazy uh, it's not a hallucination uh, that would suggest psychosis or anything like that that the uh, this is just a the, the visual system uh, the brain part the vision part of the brain is trying to fill in details and make sense out of what's around the blind spot and uh, and and will trigger sometimes memories sometimes brand new experiences uh, the, the hallucinations that occur uh, almost hesitant to use that term because it's so loaded, but uh, it's not the same thing as the type of hallucinations uh, that schizophrenics or uh, what we hear psychiatric conditions uh, might be experiencing. Uh, these are quite benign, and, uh, uh, and probably the best advice is when you experience them, just enjoy them because uh, it's nothing to be alarmed by, and it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a sign that you're, going, you're having uh, psychiatric problems. Well, I, I think on the subject of, of loaded statements, we have so many people who have asked the question, am I going blind? And in the context of macular degeneration and glaucoma, is recognizing that you're not an ophthalmologist and we can't provide medical device, advice over the phone, but what would you advise telling patients about macular degeneration and glaucoma from the, from the standpoint of answering the question, am I going blind? Well, both both conditions can be controlled. So, uh, um, glaucoma, uh, it's important to control the eye pressure, and uh, so it's it's important to to uh, take the medications that are prescribed, to, which are designed to control eye pressure. That's what causes the damage in glaucoma, and to uh, uh, visit the eye doctor on a regular basis to to make sure that the drugs are doing the job they're supposed to be doing at the dose that's prescribed. Uh, so uh, many of the people who go blind from glaucoma, it's simply because they haven't been taking the drugs, or they haven't been seeing, they haven't gotten the medical attention they need at the at the right time. Uh, same is true now with macular degeneration, is the, especially the wet form of macular degeneration, where blood vessels are growing under the retina. It's the it's the hemorrhaging of those blood vessels that grow under the retina that that uh, cause the, the vision damage uh, that, that causes the blind spot in the center. And uh, those blood vessels now can be controlled with, with uh, an injection of drugs, and uh, but they require regular injections, and so that that means uh, visiting the ophthalmologist on a regular basis to to make sure that uh, the macular degeneration is being controlled, and that uh, if you're on a treatment regimen with the injections, that that you're getting them on the schedule you should be. So I guess it's following following the advice you're being given is uh, the best advice that uh, that we could give. Well, thank you so much. I hope that that answered that question. So we have an interesting question from Lynn from New York. Lynn had 93 birthday candles on her last cake and has had AMD since 1988. That's age age-related macular degeneration. And she's asking if low vision therapy could help her. So, is there a, is there a time frame for low vision therapy? Is there an age cutoff or a duration of the disease at which the low vision therapist might uh, might have limited results, or 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 will you take all comers? It's a service that's open to anyone and everyone has a specified need. Age is not a barrier, nor is it a, a criteria for service. 
the motivation would be more of the driving factor right there. Uh, we have seen, um, in terms of age range, to give an example, we have seen from six weeks in our clinic up to 104 and everything in between. So, again, I would not use that as a criteria. I would go more by need. If you're having some functional difficulty uh, with your everyday task, that's the time to go back to your eye care provider and ask him or her, can you refer me to a, lo a local low vision rehabilitation service where you may get some help with uh, mobility services helping you get around, especially people that have central vision loss with macular degeneration or those having difficulty with drop-off steps, things at night with glaucoma. Um, they're being told there's nothing that can be done medically, which you know in one way may be true, but there are certainly things that can be done functionally, so I would not take that as an answer because you're a certain age. Well, we have a similar question from Carmen from Florida that was submitted through uh, through email earlier earlier in the week, and she says that sometimes she feels like she's making her eyes work harder than they should, especially when she's at a computer. But she's asking, really, should she start using low vision aids even though maybe she doesn't need them yet? So, is there any advantage to to starting early with the hope of maybe training oneself to use the aids before before low vision occurs? Is that a, is that a viable strategy? Yes, I could take that one. Um, sure. The uh, using low vision aids won't 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 cause any harm if that's the concern. Uh, I think if 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 you're if it makes makes it easier to perform the activities, and, and uh, uh, there's certainly no reason not to use the aids. Um, I have some dry eye, and that, when I'm using the computer for a long time, I'll start to get blurry vision. And I have my uh, uh, clip-on loops that I use when when I get to that point. I pull them out and put them on my glasses. So it's more a matter of uh, Making making it comfortable to do the things you want to be able to do and make it easy to do it. So if they help you, uh, you should use them. So Eileen from Ohio is is has phoned in and asked if there's an added eye exam or test to help determine the the prescription of people with AMD who might need glasses, you know, other than readers. And maybe Jim, if you could if you could just describe maybe the the detail of the test that you might do in, in your offices, and then is there anything that somebody could do at home as a, uh, as a stopgap to, to get an idea of, uh, of devices that might help specifically with uh, any, type of, uh, any type of glasses that might aid them in their own home? Well, to address the issue of glasses, that is why one of the main reasons you're getting the clinical low vision exam rather than just going and picking up a magnifier one of the dilemmas that we run into is many people pick up over-the-counter readers that you can get at your local drugstore, which you can usually get up to like a plus three without getting any kind of prescription. Most of the folks that provide low vision service are optometrists because they probably have had more schooling and practice in doing um, refining the refraction. There's no reason that with training, and that's one of our goals in LoverNet, to take folks doing primary eye care to teach them some basic skills that they learned in school and refresh them so that rather than just going up to a plus two and a half reading ad, which we all are going to need as we get a little bit older, to be able to go up to maybe a plus four, where the difference is now that those glasses are stronger, you just have to pull it in a little bit closer. There's nothing magic about it. You make it stronger, you pull it in closer, the image is going to get larger, and you're going to free um, your your hands up from what you're doing now, currently going out, getting over-the-shelf magnifiers. 
What I would not do is try to go and remedy this at home by going and buying, you know, countless pairs of glasses. When we have patients come in now, they come in with bags of glasses, none of which are perfect. And many of the glasses aren't theirs. They're their spouses, the family members that they've kind of done by trial and error. And that all could be corrected if you find the right provider because there is a science to this. Uh, there is an evaluation and uh, there's a logic behind coming to a given point where you take an image and put it at a certain focal point and it many times can be corrected. Thank you. We have a caller, Dennis from New York, who's, who's asking, how, how do we get better information to our low vision people, uh, especially when the doctors are only giving out basic inter- information during the, during the clinical visits? And how do we do this without using the Internet? Well, I, I'd start by saying, Dennis, I, I hope that's what we're doing right now. That's certainly why we, uh, why we started the, the Bright Focus chats. I hope they, people have found them to be helpful. Uh, Jim or Bob, do you do you have any other any other suggestions for how, without using the internet, we can raise awareness about low vision, the diseases that cause low vision disorders, and the opportunities for low vision therapy? Well, that's start, uh, what we're, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. One of the intents that we're doing right now, when we go back to where we started the uh, program, was with the Lovernet by going to the grassroots community with the lions in the community who know the eye care providers that they begin to educate and inform the local optometrist or ophthalmologist that they deal with and live with to get them to be part of their club, to tell them about low vision, to get them actively involved, and to begin in the grassroots movement. Both professional organizations, both for optometry and ophthalmology, have it in their uh, guide of practice to include low vision rehabilitation as part of it. Well, to have it is one thing, but to actually implement another, and they're going to respond much quicker to the people in the community who are their uh, potential patients that are going to be seeing them on a regular basis. So that's one of the approaches that we're trying to incorporate within this LoverNet program to make it a very fluid, active give and take between the eye care provider and the lions in terms of being foot soldiers in the community. Bob? Uh, then also uh, providing uh, public education uh, because many people uh, are of the opinion that uh, failing eyesight is just part of aging, therefore you just have to accept it and live with it uh, when in fact uh, it can be assisted and, and uh, you can live your life uh, much e- have, with much more ease and, and, uh, and, and uh, happiness if, if uh, you get some assistance with with uh, and get the appropriate tools, and uh, so educating the educating the public, educating the community is an important part of it. And uh, like you say, guy, what you're doing right now is uh, uh, an example of the type of programs that are needed and uh, need to expand. Another way of uh, getting low vision out is that many uh, organizations sponsor. Uh, uh, various types of low vision support groups, which are not so much support from the point of view of emotional support, but also support from the point of view of education, sharing tips with each other, uh, and uh, putting on programs uh, for the general public that makes people more aware. Uh, I think a lot of people think of uh, blindness as kind of either you're blind or you're not blind, or think of uh, uh, visual impairment as uh, as, as something that... Uh, is is just a, a, a severe state, and and the actual fact is that low vision is a is a, a continuum. It, it extends from fairly mild impairments that may have its major impact on on reading and on driving, 
uh, to more, much more severe. And the vast majority of uh, people with low vision are in that milder category and can be helped with fairly simple uh, strategies, fairly simple devices, fairly simple techniques. Uh, people who are completely blind represent a very small percentage of people who are visually impaired. Uh, there are close to 4 million people in the country who would be classified as having low vision, and there are only about 100,000 that have no useful vision, which we would consider totally blind. So there's that whole spectrum. And so you don't have to wait until you're at a particular point in order to get services. You don't have that. You should go after services as soon as you're having difficulty doing the things you're wanting to do. And for different people, that may be at different times because depending on what it is they're trying to do, people who have very demanding activities from a point of view, very visually demanding, uh, someone who's an artist, a visual artist, or someone who is uh, a a marksman that wants to be able to shoot their rifle, or uh, uh, you can imagine a wide variety of activities where the visual demands are much greater, whereas other people may have uh, be engaged in activities that aren't quite as visually demanding. So they might uh, seek services at different points, depending on on uh, how much the vision is impairing the activities that are important to them and that they want want need to be able to do. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's about it for the time that we, we have today. I do want to take a moment to thank Jim Deramick and Bob Massoff, both of Johns Hopkins University, for taking the time out of their days to speak with us about low vision, about the LeverNet program. Uh, I wanted to add that many of the questions that you might have, we can address through the call bank that we have here at Bright Focus Foundation. That's 1-800-437-2423. We're here. We're committed to providing information that you may need. So please take a moment to let us know if this chat answered some of the questions that you had about low vision today. We'd like to conduct a poll as we do at the end of most of these Bright Focus chats. If you would press 1, if you found the topic that we chose today to be very helpful, uh, you could press 2 if you found the topic to be somewhat helpful, or press 3 if you didn't find the topic particularly helpful. So that would be 1 if it was very helpful, 2 if it was somewhat helpful, and 3 if maybe we have a little bit more work to do. But again, I do want to take, I do want to thank Bob and Jim for taking the time to speak to us and everyone who joined the call and asked questions. Within about a week, we'll be posting a recording and a transcript of the call on our website. You can also listen to and download past chats through iTunes or SoundCloud, or of course, call that 1-800-437-2423 number, and there you can order a large print transcript of the call. So that number again, 1-800-437-2423. Our next chat will be entitled, You and Your Eye Exam, What to Know and What to Ask, and that'll be on Wednesday, May 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern, and that will be with our guest, Dr. Emily Chu from the National Eye Institute, who happens to be one of the key scientists behind the ARIDS trials that we mention so frequently on this program. We encourage you to register and submit questions in advance. We'll be, if you are registered now, we'll be sending you another reminder email in the, in the near future. And in fact, you can register for the May chat right now and also request free materials from the Bright Focus Foundation, like our Macular Degeneration Essential Facts brochure, by calling Bright Focus at the number I mentioned earlier, 800-437-2423, or visiting our website at brightfocus.org.
Thank you again for everyone for joining today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Bob, for providing your expertise. And if anyone would like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Thanks from all of us at Bright Focus Foundation. Have a great day. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.